This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, August 24th. I'm Robert Bluey. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, we talk with the Daily Signal's White House correspondent, Fred Lucas, about his new book, Abuse of Power, inside the three-year campaign to impeach Donald Trump. We also share your letters to the editor and a good news story about a 107-year-old woman who has now beaten both the Spanish flu and COVID-19. Before we get to today's show, Rob and I want to tell you about our favorite way to get the news every morning. It's called the Morning Bell, and each weekday, the Daily Signal delivers the top news and commentary directly to your inbox for free. You'll be able to read about the policy debate shaping the agenda, analysis from Heritage Foundation experts, and commentary from leading conservatives like Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, and Walter Williams. It's easy to sign up. Just visit DailySignal.com and click on the Connect button in the top right corner of the page. We'll start sending you the morning bell tomorrow. Now stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. I am joined by my colleague, Fred Lucas, the Daily Signal's White House correspondent and author of the newly released book, Abuse of Power Inside the Three-Year Campaign to Impeach Donald Trump. Fred, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So Fred, let's get right into it. Okay, so in December of last year, House Democrats voted to impeach the president. But you make uh, very clear in the title of your book, Abuse of Power Inside the Three-Year Campaign to Impeach Donald Trump, that really the effort to impeach the president began from the moment he took office. Can you just explain that a little bit further? Well, the only correction I would make there is, is it actually took place, bef- really started before he took office, pretty <laughs> much after the election, well before the inauguration. And, and I document this in there that um, uh, one of the first actions taken was uh, Elizabeth Warren actually put forward a Senate bill on emoluments saying that Trump would be committing a high crime or misdemeanor if he did not divest all of his business holdings immediately. Uh, that bill went nowhere, but it was sort of symbolic. From that point on, you had uh, Maxine Waters pushing forward the uh, what she called the Impeach 45 movement. Uh, it had like a whole host of liberal nonprofits with such as Tom Steyer, John Boniface, who, who ran this uh, group Impeach Donald Trump now. Uh, so, so, so these things were all in place you know, eventually after the inauguration, which uh, and and they continued, people were pressing. There were actually three impeachment resolutions against Trump that reached the House floor. Uh, that Congressman Al Green had managed to force a vote, a House floor vote on these resolutions, uh, well before the Ukrainian phone call. So, so basically, the the bottom line is the push to impeach Trump did not start with a Ukrainian phone call. So you you mentioned Maxine Waters, and I mean, it was probably, gosh, only like a month after the president had taken office um, that she openly said that essentially her goal was to see him impeached. There, There was no hiding this. They were very, very blatant, very obvious right from the start. They didn't want Trump in office. But why? Where did this hatred come from so early on before the president had hardly done anything? It was, um... I, Trump, Trump even recently said, maybe it's my personality. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, I think that was a lot of it. I think uh, he just was not supposed to win uh, was a big part of it. 
what I would say is, is that early on, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, first as minority leader, later speaker, did not want to see this happen. She thought it would be a political loser, uh, uh, had no chance of going anywhere. And, and she uh, at one point said that uh, she wanted an impeachment needed to be uh, compelling overwhelming and bipartisan. Uh, she in, ended up being settling for an impeachment that was very uncompelling, underwhelming, and very partisan. I think one of the things about Pelosi's, uh, it was kind of a total collapse in her leadership because she could not stave this off. Um, and one interesting thing is that um, she'd said that just at, shortly after Democrats took the majority, Pelosi was in an interview and said that Trump just is not worth impeachment. And and the important thing about that is that when she said that, that was before the Mueller report came out. Uh, now, a lot of people knew that by this point, we're strongly suspecting that the Mueller report would not find any collusion in the Russia scandal. But at least in theory, there was some chance we didn't know what the final report would say. Uh, and I think that's very telling because uh, here is Pelosi on 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 the chance, at least in theory, the chance that Mueller would come back with a report saying that there was collusion, which would be a very treacherous thing. If, if that were true, that would be a very treacherous thing for Donald Trump to be involved in, uh, a collusion with Russia. It turned out not to be true. Um, but uh, just a few months later, uh, Pelosi, um, after saying Trump wouldn't be worth it, uh, given the chance that there was collusion, uh, a few months later, Pelosi is all been out of shape over a phone call with a Ukraine president. So, you know, those two things don't really seem to mesh. So, uh, so what happened then in between her sort of being almost a little nonchalant in a way and saying that the president is not worth impeaching to then all of a sudden uh, calling for his head? Yes. Uh, well, uh, I one one big thing we uh, there's an entire chapter in this book that gets into um, Pelosi's feud with the Squad, uh, and the Squad had a huge role in this. Uh, one congressional source that I talked to said that there's a direct parallel between impeachment and the power of the Squad, and they they really came in and pushed this. And the First squad day. being Elon Omar right. and, and AOC and yeah. those folks. Okay. Right, 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 right. right. Those full lawmakers, and, and it looks like it's going to be expanding maybe after this election. Yes. So from from that point, uh, yeah, they they were they were sort of winning a a PR war against Pelosi among the grassroots of the party, uh, and 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 you eventually had this uh, situation where. Pelosi was to some degree in open warfare with the squad, and she was she she'd given some uh, an interview I think that was somewhat dismissive of the squad, referred to the Green New Deal as the Green Dream or whatever, uh, and uh, and this this caused uh, AOC reared back and ended up playing the race card against Pelosi. Uh, so some of the, uh, Omar, uh, did some similar very publicly. Um, now, uh, the, probably the advisable thing to do in this would be to sort of set back and let the, uh, democratic civil war go on. Um, uh, Trump 
probably unwisely uh, went to Twitter and attacked the squad during this, which caused Pelosi kind of gave her an out to come in and defend the squad. And, and that sort of settled this feud. But uh, there, there, there was one interesting thing that I note in this book, and that was when Pelosi visited with uh, AOC. Pelosi posted their photos together on social media. AOC did not. And, and, and I think that there was, a, uh, there was almost a, a message there that Pelosi was the one who was trying to fit in and be part of the cool kids, and AOC did not feel like she had to. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, this is really like insider, you know, political play, essentially. I mean, it kind of sounds like a middle school classroom. Of, I'm going to bully this kid because the cool kids don't like him. Yeah. Uh, well, there, there, there is a good bit of insider here, um, baseball stuff here, because we uh, uh, this book's based on more than a dozen interviews. Uh, it's not just me pontificating. Uh, I've interviewed uh, numerous people on Capitol Hill in the White House, both on the record and off the record. Uh, Another good bit of insider info that that actually got some media attention this past week, which I was happy to see that, uh, was what the book said about how uh, Adam Schiff really edged out Nadler to end up being the guy who runs the impeachment. And a lot of that had to do with Nadler did not do a very good job when he tried to uh, jump into the impeachment and handle it uh, with some of the early stuff with the Mueller stuff. He did a horrible job in in his committee work and 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 hearings and so forth. At that point, after about three hearings, Pelosi became very upset, and she knew if if the caucus did push her to an impeachment, that she did not want to use Nadler. Now. Uh, another interesting thing is that uh, Schiff was very ambitious during all this, and he uh, there there was actually somewhat revealing here. He actually had a tweet about two weeks before the whistleblower complaint came out, in which he complained that uh, that the money seemed to be on hold at the time when uh, Rudy Giuliani had said he was uh, investigating. Joe Biden. Uh, Some of that had been public, but some of this revealed, made it look as almost like uh, Schiff might have had some advanced knowledge that this whistleblower complaint was coming. Wow, that's fascinating. So why was this seen as an opportunity? Why was the the Ukraine phone call and, and the whistleblower the second chance, essentially, that the left saw, okay, the Russian collusion thing didn't work, we're gonna latch onto this? Second chance, that's actually, I, the, the New York Times even actually called it a do-over of sorts, uh, in, in which they, they referred to Adam Schiff as being the, the, the can-do special counsel that Robert Mueller could not be, and, and, which I referenced that. But um, yeah, the, this was um, the, the Russia narrative that they built up uh, for years and they made a real the democrats made a real strong investment in the russian narrative that collapsed on them after the Mueller report and uh they they had to turn to something because even after all this uh that that's sort of been what pelosi had used to stave off impeachment talk from maxine waters al green and others was that let's wait for the Mueller report and then see um and then the Mueller report came out 
Um, I think Pelosi, probably maybe Nadler at the time, thought, well, we'll be okay. We'll just we'll have to beat him at, in the election. Uh, and then um, the the calls for impeachment did not quite down. Uh, but but at, on some level, they, they picked up uh, by June or early July of that year, a majority of the Democratic caucus was calling for either an impeachment or an impeachment inquiry against Trump, even after the Mueller report, uh, because it became uh, the the big part of it was uh, from people I interviewed and talked to on this. The fear among Democrats, uh, even moderate Democrats, was that they would be primaried. Uh, Impeaching Trump became a political litmus test. So it, it almost stands to reason that the next thing to come along was going to be what they called for impeachment on. And um, this was a, you know, th- this was not a perfect call, as Trump said, but 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 it was a, I, I don't think uh, under any other president, it would have been considered an impeachable offense. Uh, they, they were looking for something though, something, anything that they could uh, use as a grounds for impeachment. They, Framed this as a national security threat, um, and and the the book gets into uh, how they went through several editions of this. First, they called it a quid pro quo with Zelensky. That didn't really shock people's conscience, uh, uh, so they they started using the word bribery. Uh, but that was not a convincing sell. Extortion is a word that they tossed around for a little while to describe Trump and Zelensky. That didn't work, so they eventually settled with abuse of power and obstruction of justice, which was sort of broad enough for people to generally understand, but uh, non-specific enough that they didn't have to really explain. So one of the most interesting things uh, that you discuss in the book is that this this standard that was used by the Democrats to justify impeachment, if if those standards were applied across the board to every other previous president, pretty much every other president would be worthy of impeachment. Can you just explain that a little bit further? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get into the book quite a bit on that. Um, certainly... You don't have to go back that far. I mean, just Obama. Uh, certainly, obstruction of Congress. Uh, uh, he, in, in this case, Obama used executive privilege to shield Eric Holder from having to turn over documents about Fast and Furious. That was something that could have easily been considered. And and, and Eric Holder was found in contempt of Congress for holding back these documents. Um, that's something that Congress could have, in theory. Uh, impeached by, by this standard, they could impeach Obama over that uh, for obstructing Congress um, and abuse of power. Oh my gosh, that's such a broad term. Uh, certainly, you could say that Obama's use of the uh, immigration executive actions, uh, DACA, DAPA, uh, one could say that those were abuses of power. So we have to touch on just briefly, and I know you touch on in, in the book, um, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton were the only presidents who were actually, uh, besides President Trump, impeached. What was different about their impeachments versus President Trump's? Well, the big thing is that um, both of those uh, were impeached over um, actual crimes or alleged crimes, I should say, but uh, but actual criminality was uh, 
involved in the articles of impeachment. Bill Clinton uh, was impeached for perjury and obstruction of justice uh, in his attempt to cover up the Monica Lewinsky affair. Um, and uh, I, I would further note that uh, impeachment, uh, the legacy of impeachment, was not the only consequence for Bill Clinton in that he had to pay a $90,000 contempt of court fee for lying under oath about the Lewinsky situation. He had to uh, surrender his law license. Uh, and uh, so I, I, he faced legal consequences beyond uh, political. There, there's almost no chance that Trump will be um, face any kind of legal consequence for, for the Ukraine phone call because abuse of power is not an actual statute. Uh, obstruction of Congress is not a statute. It, it seems to be... Uh, Democrats seem to have tried to merge uh, contempt of Congress, which is an actual statute, uh, with obstruction of justice, which is a statute, and create something new called obstruction of Congress. But uh, uh, in the impeachment of Trump, but uh, so that's that was not a actual criminal law. Going back all the way to Andrew Johnson, um, he was impeached for violation of the Tenure of Office Act, um, and just real quickly, that was. Congress had passed a law with a supermajority over Johnson's veto saying that the president cannot fire a cabinet official without the approval of the Senate. So uh, Johnson uh, knew it was an impeachment trap. He walked right into it uh, and fired the uh, Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. So uh, the Republican House impeached him for that, and um, they— the Senate acquitted him by just one vote, actually. But uh, that's that impeachment is pretty much frowned on by most historians today, because mainly because the Tenure of Office Act was later ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But I think there's a point that um, at the time, that was a duly enacted statute, uh, and Johnson was actually impeached by impeached for violating an actual law. So I think the Johnson impeachment probably will stand up to history much better than the Trump impeachment. Wow. So, you know, what I think to me, and I'm sure to so many Americans, is so troubling and concerning about Trump's impeachment is that it was so partisan. Uh, And, you know, we see from, from really the founder's intent of you know, allowing for impeachment uh, was not to remove a candidate just because you disagree with their policies or you don't like them. There was very specific intent there. So just explain for a moment uh, why why this vote was uh, really concerning to see it straight down party lines. Well, there there was uh, there were a couple of uh, Democrats in the House that or I, I think four overall that voted against at least one article of impeachment. But, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, it was a party line vote. And then in the Senate, Mitt Romney crossed over to vote to convict. Um, but yeah, it, it was almost entirely partisan. And the book actually gets into a bit of why we've seen Republicans, actually, who didn't like Trump early on, um, why they became somewhat more loyal to him. And, and it's largely because he was ended up being a more conservative president than anticipated uh, is one, but also uh, because of the left's sort of hair on fire attitude towards Trump, uh, which is uh, almost 
one of always exploding over everything he does, and it's always a crisis. And um, I, I think that extended here. Um, Democrats felt very pressured uh, by their party base. There were a lot of moderates who ran uh, in purple districts and red districts in 2018. Uh, Pelosi owed the majority to them. And they campaigned on saying, we're not going to Washington to impeach the president. We're not like those other Democrats. We're moderates. Um, and, but, but then when they got into Congress, they sort of faced the threat of a primary challenge. Uh, and, and I think uh, their rationale was that uh, a primary challenge, even if it's not successful, could really hobble somebody going into a general election. Um, whereas if voters might forgive you, if you just vote along the party line on a major seemingly inconsequential issue like impeachment, because no one thought that Trump would actually be removed by the Senate. Fred, you know, I, I love your perspective on all of this because as the Daily Signal's White House correspondent, you were watching all of this unfold really up close and personal. I mean, when, when there's not a global pandemic, you're at the White House multiple times every week. You're on the Hill. What was it like being in D.C., being at the White House, being on the Hill when all of this was unraveling? Give us kind of your, your inside perspective. What were some of those vivid memories that you have? Oh, it, it was uh, it was uh, uh, just a a feeling of, of being in, involved in something historic, and and like I said, there was never a chance that Trump was going to be removed from office, but there was definitely, uh, you know, this is this is only the third time in American history this has happened. Yeah, I think there was this vibe. Uh, I think there was uh, chatter among other reporters about the the historical aspect of it, but but also there was chatter about who this helps, who this hurts in the election. Uh, I, I think since that time, everything's been sort of uh, focused on COVID. But uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, at one point, this seemed like it might be a big issue going into the election. So the book is called Abuse of Power Inside the Three-Year Campaign to Impeach Donald Trump by Fred Lucas. And Fred, the book can be found on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, awesome. Well, we'll be sure to, to have a link to the book in today's show notes. And Fred, we just really appreciate you coming on the show uh, and so excited for this, for this book and just to uh, really hear and read your inside perspective. Okay, thanks for having me on. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who's up first? In response to my recent podcast interview with John Tillman, What's Going On in Minneapolis After City Council Vote to Defund Police, S. O'Connick of Minnesota writes, 
Thanks for the podcast shining a light on the dysfunction happening in our Minnesota state government. It's embarrassing to be a citizen here with the recent unrest in the Twin Cities. Although I do feel that the majority of Minnesotans support our police, I work in the heart of the metro, surrounded by far-left supporters, and it is difficult to feel comfortable speaking about this topic. And Gmail left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, writing, Balanced and insightful interviews on a variety of topics. Look forward to listening each day. This is the way the national press used to be. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks for that review. It means a lot to us, and we encourage other listeners to take the time and do a review themselves so we can help continue to expand our reach. Your letter could be featured on next week's show, so send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? Every day, the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. Webinar topics range from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Virginia, you have a good news story to share with us today. Over to you. Thank you, Rob. At the age of 107, Anna Del Priori has now beaten both the Spanish flu and COVID-19. Del Priori grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and contracted the Spanish flu when she was only six years old. In May, she was diagnosed with COVID-19 and suffered from appetite loss and a fever, but she never needed a ventilator. Darlene Jasmine, Del Priori's 66-year-old granddaughter, told the Asbury Park Press that when she received the call that her grandmother had contracted COVID, she thought, this is the thing that's going to take her down. But that was not the case. Del Priori has made a full recovery and is back to her normal self, sewing, walking, and even dancing. The COVID survivor, who now lives at a senior care facility in New Jersey, was a seamstress when she was younger, and her late husband was a professional tango dancer. To this day, she still loves to dance. Del Priori told the Asbury Park Press, Dancing makes you feel good. I want to keep my health. Her granddaughter said her recovery from COVID may have something to do with her having beaten the Spanish flu as a child. And she added that her grandmother has always lived a healthy lifestyle. She's constantly moving. We always walked in Brooklyn, to the grocery store, to the bakery. Every night, she would make a homemade meal from scratch. All Mediterranean food, olive oil, vegetables, fruits, nuts. It's like the old peasant food that now they charge so much for, Jasmine said. The 107-year-old told reporters, I feel good. I thank God I'm alive. And Del Priori's younger sister, who's 105 years old, has also survived both viruses. Wow, a story like this makes me think that I should probably be eating more Mediterranean food and I guess take up dancing. What an amazing woman. It's always beautiful to see someone who has lived such a full life and overcome great challenges, but is still so full of joy. It certainly is, Virginia. Thanks for finding that story. Uh, you know, we know from from our work at the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission how much the older population, particularly those in nursing homes and senior centers, have been impacted by COVID-19. So it's nice to hear about a success story in someone who's 
overcome the challenges that uh, that our country faces. So uh, many thanks uh, for that that spirited family and all that they're doing to, to bring hope and joy to others. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to other listeners. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. Have a great week. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.